invite you to bow your heads and to pray with me. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have drawn us together as a community uh, in this time, in this place, uh, to meet with you, uh, to hear from you through your word. Lord, we thank you for, for last week's teaching, just this beautiful vision, this dream of being a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping before the throne and before the Lamb. Lord, it's a beautiful vision, but now as we wrestle with how do we pursue that vision in a world of division, God, we ask that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the word you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I said at the beginning of the service, you know, we talked last week about this amazing vision that God has given us. He's called us to um, a mission that goes to every people. He says, go and make disciples of all nations because his heart, that final vision of what the family of God will be, is a vision of all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from every cultural background, worshiping before the throne and before the Lamb. Our unity is found in Christ, but it's a unity that's expressed in beautiful diversity. It's this gorgeous picture that he says, you as the church are called to pursue in the world. But the truth is, is we're not there yet. We still live in a world of division. We still live in a world of prejudices. We still live in a world of barriers. And the question is, what will we do as a church when we have to address those barriers? What will we do as a church when it comes time to have difficult conversations about prejudice and about our blind spots? Because the question, the question isn't, Uh, If those things happen, it's a question of when. When those conversations take place, what will our posture be? And this is part of the reason why we're going to take a few moments this morning to spend some time in Acts chapter 6. Because in Acts chapter 6, that's the very question that's facing the early church. You see, what's going on uh, right before Acts chapter 6 is that the church in Jerusalem is growing. The apostles are going out. They're sharing the good news about Jesus Christ with people. They're baptizing people daily. But more than that, the church has become kind of this bizarre community in Jerusalem because they're actually caring for the marginalized in their society around them. And one particular community that they've said our mission is going to be to serve this community is the, is the community of widows. You see, in ancient times, uh, many women, especially in that society and in that day, they depended on their husbands for their daily living. And when your husband passed away, you then needed to depend on your sons. You depended on them for your survival. But if you didn't have any sons or your sons died, well, then you were really in a tough spot. You uh, basically lived without any means of providing for your basic needs. And the church, the church in Jerusalem saw this community in need and they said, we can meet their need. We can care for those that society has overlooked. And so they're doing this. They're starting to take a collection of food and a collection of money for these widows. But there's a problem. This is what Acts chapter 6 reads. It says that in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. See, the problem that the early church encountered was actually a problem of unintentional prejudice. Because while, yes, they were all Jews together, they were, there were some differences culturally and linguistically. 
There were Jews who spoke, you know, the Hebrew language, and they were a little bit more uh, Hebrew in kind of their culture and their background. And then there were Jews who spoke Greek, and they were a little bit more Greek in kind of their language and cultural background. And what the what comes to the attention of the apostles is that they've been serving the, the widows from kind of the, the Hebrew backgrounds, but they're not serving the widows who are from a more of a Greek background. That there's an issue of prejudice in their community that hasn't yet been addressed. And now it's being brought to their attention. They said, you know, you said that you're going to care for marginalized people, but you're overlooking and marginalizing a, a certain community. And the question they have to wrestle with is, how will we respond to that criticism? How will we respond to that complaint? Because as I think about it, and I think about my, my own reactions and my own heart when criticism uh, comes to me about something that I've done or something that I've said or something that I've failed to do, I, I know that I tend to kind of default to one of three positions. The first position that I tend to default to is the position of defense. I want to defend myself. Somebody comes up and they say, hey, something that you've done hurt or something you failed to do hurt or maybe something that you've said was actually a little prejudiced. And my first knee-jerk reaction is to defend and justify myself. I want to backpedal and kind of give some context, you know, help people understand where I'm coming from. But the problem with defending myself in that moment is that I'm more concerned about me and not so much concerned about the person who's sharing with me their hurt and their pain. Or another knee-jerk posture that we sometimes go to is we go to the posture of denying. Of denying that there's even a problem. We kind of stick our head in the sand. And we say, you know, you're really just blowing this out of proportion, okay? You need to be a little less sensitive, all right? Because this really isn't an issue. And that's almost worse than defense because... Now, not only am I trying to defend myself, but I'm basically telling the person that their experiences and that the pain that they're wrestling with doesn't really matter. That their voice doesn't really count. And sometimes I think that we can default to a, de to a position of blaming. Somebody brings up a criticism or a complaint. They highlight an area maybe of prejudice in, in us or in our own community, and instead we turn around and we blame them for the problem. We say, well, this is really your issue to solve. It's really a problem in your community that you have to fix. And again, this is even worse than the other two because what we're basically saying is we're taking a hurt person or a hurt community and we're saying, and we're laying more hurt on top of it. We're kicking them while they're down and saying, well, this is really about you getting your act in gear. And the truth is, these three postures of defense, of denial, or of blame, this is how we react whenever anybody comes to us and confronts us with sin, isn't it? I mean, whether it's prejudice or racism, or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's greed or gossip. We tend to default to these three, three positions because we as sinful people want to justify ourselves. And make ourselves look good. But, but that's just the problem with sin. Is that it not only damages us. It creates even further damage and pain to those around us. I love how the uh, Japanese Catholic writer Shushako Endo in his book Silence puts this. This is how he defines sin. I love this quote. He says, sin is not what it is usually thought to be. It's not to steal and to tell lies. Sin is for one man to walk brutally over the life of another and be quite oblivious to the wounds that he has left behind. 
And I think that this is especially true when it comes to those divisions within our community that stem from unaddressed prejudice. Those issues in our community that that stem from our own blind spots when it comes to entering into relationship and community with people who come from a different cultural or racial background than we do. That oftentimes we default to defense, denial, and blaming, but in doing so, we walk over the life of another person and we're totally oblivious to the damage that we've left in our wake. And the question is, what is the early church going to do? How are they going to respond now that someone has called them on an issue of prejudice? Now that someone has kind of brought it to them? Will they default to denial? Will they default to defense, to blame? I mean, imagine with me for a second if that was the, church, the early church's first response. If in their first kind of cross-cultural encounter, their first kind of cross-cultural issue, they immediately defaulted to one of these defensive positions. What would the result have been? Well, I think the result is that none of us would be here today. Not a single one of us. If in their first cross-cultural encounter, they kind of retreated, they backpedaled, and they looked inward again and just continued to serve their own cultural and linguistic community, it would have meant that nobody sitting here today would be here. That the early church would have simply remained this small, obscure sect in Judaism. They would have never pursued that mission of going and making disciples of all nations. They would have never pursued that mission that was going to call them to cross linguistic and cultural and ethnic barriers. For the sake of letting people know about the love and grace of God. The good news is is that they didn't do it. They did not default to one of these positions. Instead, they did something that I think is beautiful, that is radical, and that is incredibly contemporary for us today. Because the first thing that the early church does when this criticism is brought to them, when they've been accused of marginalizing another community, is the first thing they do is they call a family meeting. They call a family meeting. I just love this. It says that the moment this complaint is brought to them, the 12 gathered all the disciples together. They got the family together and they said, hey, we realize that we've been marginalizing someone. We realize that unintentionally we've been, we've been kind of overlooking an entire community. And because of this blind spot, because of this prejudice, we're actually doing damage. We're doing damage to others and we're hurting our own mission and our own ministry. That when somebody brings up this criticism of of, of prejudice and says we have to address this, rather than defending, they receive it. They receive it well, and they get the whole community together, and they say, what can we do about this? How can we solve this problem? And again, I think that this is a a really important uh, lesson for us to learn today because of the fact that conversations about race and about prejudice are so emotionally charged in our culture these days. And in fact, a couple of years ago, as I was going through some multi-ethnicity training, uh, one of the people leading the training had us watch a, a video. It was a TED Talk given by the DJ host uh, and personality, uh, Jay Smooth. Okay, now you know if it, with a name like Jay Smooth, anything that he says is going to be awesome. <laughs> but, he, but the title of his talk was, How to Love Talking About Race. It was called, How to Love Talking About Race. 
And he says, part of the problem that we have with talking about race in our culture today is we kind of de- we kind of look at people on this like polarity of you are either a racist or you're not. You're either a racist or you're not. He says, we kind of treat racism almost like tonsils. You either have it or you don't. And so if somebody comes up to us and says, hey, I think that the thing that you said was a little prejudiced. I think that was a little racist. We say, no, 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 I I don't have racism. My racism was removed, you know, surgically in 2005 when I watched that movie Crash. You know, all good. And he says, that is not helpful because in dealing with prejudice, dealing with prejudice is really about a journey. It's about a journey of becoming a person who loves people who are different than you are. And he says, I want us to ditch the tonsils paradigm of talking about race and instead embrace the dental hygiene paradigm. And here's what he means by that. He said, the dental hygiene paradigm acknowledges that we all have work to do on a daily basis, kind of like brushing your teeth, right? You don't brush your teeth once and say, now I'm a clean person. It's like, no, you have to do it daily. He says, and furthermore, it might take some intermediate work of some people calling out some stuff like, hey, there's a piece of broccoli stuck in your teeth. And when somebody comes to you and they say, hey, there's a piece of broccoli stuck in your teeth, you don't go, what are you talking about? I'm a clean person. How dare you? We say, no, 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 no. Thank you for telling me that because I do not want to go into my next board meeting with a piece of vegetable like hanging out of my jaws. And so we pick it out. We deal with it right there in that moment. He says, what if when people address prejudice, when they call out our blind spots, we actually received that as a gift? He has this great line. I just love this line. He says, we should consider it a gesture of kindness and an act of respect when someone tells us that we have something racist stuck in our teeth. And I was just like, yeah. And honestly, when I look at the Act 6 community, that's exactly the way they dealt with this. Somebody came and they said, you guys have some prejudice, and it's hurting our community. And they said, you know what? Thank you. Thank you for calling that. Let's get the family together. Let's solve this together. And I think that that's actually even easier to do when we remember first and foremost that our identity as a people is bound up in the grace and love of God. When I know that my identity is really about being loved by God in Christ Jesus and that daily his Holy Spirit is working in my life to help make me more like him, I'm able to handle these kinds of criticisms because I see them as a gift. I see it as the Holy Spirit doing a deep work in our hearts to help us become the people God has called us to be. And that's what the early church does. They say, we are the people of God, so let's deal with this as a family of God. But then the second thing that they do that I think is so amazing is they actually empower people to join them in the work that needs to be done. They realize that they need help in this area. The apostles straight up say, hey, we've got a job. Our job is to preach and teach the word. But this is an important issue. And so we need to to appoint leaders who can actually help us address it in a healthy way. And so they go to the community and they say, hey, why don't you pick seven men who are full of the spirit and wisdom? And we will bless them and we will give them this responsibility. And as commentators look at the names of the, of the guys who are chosen, one of the things that they note is that the names of all seven is they're all Greek. Which that indicates that these leaders are actually from the community that was just marginalized. And the apostles say, not only are we going to deal with this problem, we want your help and leadership. We need your perspective. We need your insight and your expertise, your courage and your wisdom and your faith to help us become the community that God has called us to be. 
And they welcome them into leadership, and they empower them for the ministry. It kind of ends with this amazing moment where the apostles lay their hands on these seven, and they bless them, and they pray for them, and they say, go and do the work that you've been called to do. See, part of it is, yeah, we've got to call a family meeting. We need to receive the criticism, but then we need to be willing to ask people for help, people who have a different perspective than us to join us in the work that we're doing. And I would argue that when we can address difficult conversations with this kind of humility and grace and love, some pretty beautiful and amazing things will happen. The first thing that will happen is we will actually get a bigger picture of Jesus and of the work that he's called us to do. Here's what I mean. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis talks about friendship in this way. He says, In each of my friends... There is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. He says that in my friendship communities, there are certain things that I can bring out of my best friends. Certain jokes, certain kinds of laughter, certain gifts that they have. But it takes my other friends also drawing things out of them as well for me to really see and appreciate the whole person. And this is why C.S. Lewis goes on to say that friendship is the least jealous of loves because two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth. They can say as the blessed souls in Dante, here comes one who will augment our loves. They recognize that there's richness in more people coming into the community of friendship because we draw more and more stuff out of each other. That we become better in our relationships with one another. And if that's true of human friendship, how much truer is that of our relationship with Jesus? That as more people come into the community of faith and they bring with them their own stories, their own backgrounds, their own cultural perspective, They see Jesus in a different facet that I might not otherwise have seen on my own. They bring out something beautiful in the body of Christ that would have never been there before. This is part of the reason why Paul talks about the amazing gift that we have in the body of Christ. He says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all of its its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit to form one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we're all given one spirit to drink, even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. He says that when we come together and we recognize that we each, that our differences are actually a gift and a blessing, we actually see more of Jesus, and we have a deeper understanding and appreciation of our calling as his people. That's the first gift that happens when we're able to step, step into tough conversations and address them with grace and love and humility. But the second thing that happens is we're actually able to reach people that we wouldn't have otherwise reached. I love how this passage in Acts 6 ends. It says that at, once they solve this issue, once they d- address it as a community and they move forward together, it says that the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
Now, this is incredible to me because it says that the word of God, despite this conflict, and actually because they resolve this conflict and address it, continues to multiply. But then the people who are brought in is a community that on their own they might never have reached before. It's the community of the priests. You see, if you remember during Jesus' own ministry, there was a couple subsets within the people of Israel who didn't really like what Jesus was doing. You had the Pharisees, you had the scribes, and you actually had priests and other teachers of the law. And yet what we learn in Acts chapter 6 is when this early church community is able to heal divisions because of their common identity as God's people, the rest of the watching world suddenly stands up and kind of takes some notice. That the priests see something in the healing and the bridge building and the reconciling that the church is doing. And they say, that's beautiful and I want to be a part of it. And I think, again, that's true for us today. That when we are a community that doesn't deny that these issues exist, that doesn't make excuses for them or blame other people. But when we actually step into it together as a family of faith. That speaks to a watching world about the reconciliation that God has done in our lives. A reconciliation with him, but also that reconciliation that we have with each other as a family. I remember when this was driven home to me very, very recently. There was a story that was told to me by one of my friends. See, uh, he and his wife, they came up from St. Louis to my ordination. And afterwards, uh, the next day, they came over to our house for lunch before going back home. And uh, we, met, we met this couple when we were down there in St. Louis. Um, uh, I was actually with my daughter at a playground, and I met David and uh, his son, Elliot. And they started, we all, you know, our kids started playing together, and David and I got to talking. And I learned some things about him and Holly. I learned that, first and foremost, they are, uh, ad- they are uh, professors of modern dance at Wash U. Just very cool, creative, like, artistic people. But I also learned that they kind of had some hang-ups about the church. Uh, David, especially, always kind of held the church at arm's length. He, arm's length. He was very skeptical of organized religion. And he actually saw that what he believed is he said, I, I look at the history of the church, and I see that the church is just perpetuating a lot of the same problems I see in the world. That was one of his, like, big criticisms. But we loved David and Holly. We spent lots of time with them and would talk with them. But when he came up to my ordination, as we were sitting there and talking in our kitchen, David said, hey, before we go back home, I wanted to share something with you. I said, okay. And he's like, I wanted to let you know that uh, we've started to go to church again as a family. Okay, first and foremost, best ordination present you could have ever gotten. But I said, you know, tell me about that. What, what happened? He's just like, well, um, there's this church plant that was starting up in University City right around the same time that you guys left. It was called uh, University City uh, Family Church. And he's like, do you remember this? And I was like, yeah, I, I remember hearing about that church. He's like, yeah, well, um, the pastor, uh, his son is in the same class as Elliot is. And so we kind of got to know each other on a playground again. Um, he's like, I keep running into pastors on playgrounds. <laughs> it's like, but we got to know each other on the playground again, and he, he invited me to the church. And finally, I was like, you know what? We should, we should just go. Let's go and see what his church is like. He's like, and I walked into the auditorium, and I looked, and I saw on the stage that the, the praise band was being led by a white guy on his guitar from Nashville, but he was being backed up by a black guy on drums, an Asian girl on keys, a Latino guy on the horn, and I looked around that entire auditorium, and I saw people of different racial backgrounds, of different socioeconomic backgrounds, and they were all there praising Jesus together. And afterwards, when the service was over, they just kept hanging out and talking and finding out what was going on in each other's lives, and they were really welcoming to us. And he's like, and Nick, I couldn't help but think about this, that, that here in this community, 
were a bunch of people who out in the world would never have interacted with one another. And yet they were brought together because of their faith in God, their faith in Jesus. And I realized that is so beautiful that I want to be a part of it. That was an amazing story. For my friend who used to hold the church at arm's length because he thought that we were just about perpetuating divisions in the world, that when he saw the church of God being the church of God, being a reconciling and healing people, he said, that's so beautiful, I want to be a part of it. When we recognize the fact that we've been reconciled to God through Christ and made one family because of his grace and his love for us, and when we not just talk about that, but when we live that out, even in the midst of hard conversations, even in the midst of dealing with prejudice and blind spots, it speaks volumes to a watching world about the truth and the reality of the gospel. It says that when God is a God of forgiveness who heals all divisions, they know it's true because they see that being lived out in the people of faith. And I don't know about you, but that's ex- I want to hear more stories like that. I want to hear more stories like that, that when people look at this church community, whatever the differences are, whether it's race or culture, or whether it's socioeconomic status, or whether it's political differences, or whatever it is, that when they look at this community, they see that this is a community of grace and forgiveness because we know the grace and forgiveness that we've already received from Jesus. And my prayer is that people would say, that's so beautiful. I want to be a part of it. I want to know that God who brings healing in the midst of division. That's my prayer and that's my hope for us. That's why on that Connect card, you've got some next steps. Maybe the next step for you is just to memorize that vision, that dream of God from Revelation 7, 9. Maybe the next step is simply to take the take it home home with you this week and do some more devotions on this subject and to really meditate on what it means to address difficult conversations with the love and the grace and the humility of God. Maybe it's you're realizing, I need more resources to know what it's like, what it means to be a bridge builder. If you check that box, I'm going to follow up with you and give you some. I'll connect you. I'll connect, you know, you with some great resources that can help you learn and grow in this particular area of your discipleship and your walk with God. But the point is, my prayer is that we would all continue on this journey together. And the result would be that more people would come to know Christ and come to be more like him. And it's to that end that I'd like us to pray. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that the reconciliation that you do with us isn't just individually us with you, but it's us together as a whole community. Lord, that that's a healing that we need, and it's a healing that you graciously give through your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't run from difficult conversations, but that we would enter in with the kind of humility and love that you, in which you entered into our lives. Lord, I pray that that grace and forgiveness that you've given to us would overflow as we have hard conversations with each other. And Lord, we pray that the watching world would know that you indeed, God, are a God of mercy, forgiveness, transformation, and eternal life. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our reconciler. Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about a relationship with Christ or more about Trinity? 
who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or growth group. Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T-L-C, the number four, and the letter U.org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.